0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. James Garbarino, G-A-R-B-A-R-I-N-O, and he published a book in 2015. The title of that book is Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological ep- Expert Witness in Murder Cases. But this book that he wrote in 2015 is one of 26 books that he's written. Some of the titles, his best-known book is Lost Boys, Why Our Sons Turn Violent, and How We Can Save Them. That was published in 1999. There's also an audio book for that. But uh, one of the more recent books is Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us. Also, The Positive Psychology of Personal Transformation, Leveraging Resilience for Life Change in 2011. CJ Jane Hit, Why Girls Are Growing More Violent and What We Can Do About It in 2007. Also, and Words Can Hurt Forever, How to Protect Adolescents from Bullying, Harassment, and Emotional Violence, 2002, very important topic. And uh, also some of his earlier books, some of which were mentioned in this book, Listening to Killers, is the 1991 No Place to Be a Child Growing Up in a War Zone in 1992, Children in Danger, Coping with the Consequences of Community Violence. But he's going to talk more about this book, Listening to Killers. So, Dr. Garbarino, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name, can you talk? You have a very long, lengthy background. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write this book, Listening to Killers?
1: Well, I came to developmental psychology as a graduate student uh, after being a classroom teacher, and uh, I was the low man on the totem pole, and so I was assigned sort of all the worst students. (laughs) So this is back in the um, late 1960s, and it really had an influence on my future development because I was very taken with how the influences of what happened to them at home and in the community were brought into the classroom. So I mention that because it sort of propelled me into a doctoral program in developmental psychology, but always with an interest in social issues, uh, not just sort of... uh, pure developmental science disconnected from, from the world. And so the first, uh, oh, I got my PhD in 1973. So really the first almost 20 years of my career were spent developing some expertise in child abuse, uh, trauma, uh, the impact of war on children. Uh, and then when I moved to Chicago in 1985, to become president of the Erickson Institute for Advanced Study and Child Development, I quickly got involved in the impact of community violence, that kind of trauma on kids, in part because the students who came to this graduate program were early childhood educators, many of whom worked in inner city communities where community violence in a place like Chicago was was really a a big, big issue, still is, of course. In the early 1990s, um, I I started getting approached by originally one lawyer who had a teenager who was in a murder trial. And she had become aware, aware of work I had done on the links and the joint impact of violence and the maltreatment in the home and violence and trauma in the community. And thought that from what she had read, this was very relevant to her client who was a 15 year old girl who had shot another teenager reportedly because of a dispute over a jacket. And so I agreed to testify in that case. It was something I had never planned to do. I just sort of, uh, the door was opened in front of me and it seemed like an important thing to do. So I walked through that door, went up to Milwaukee where the case was, Um, the lawyer tried to present me to the court, the prosecution objected claimed that it was irrelevant, the the traumatic history of this girl, her exposure to community violence, uh, her psychological, physical, sexual abuse at home, and the judge agreed with the prosecution and uh, basically sent me home. Um, well, the case went on appeal. Eventually, it got up to the federal courts, and the courts eventually took 12 years, as these things often do and the courts eventually ruled that I should have been able to testify that it was relevant. Um, By that time, the state sort of just let this girl go after 12 years, in part because when she was sentenced, the father and the sister of the victim had heard the hearing on what I would say if I was allowed to testify, and it had an effect on them. They said, you know, we understand what happened better now to our daughter or sister, that this girl did and they asked the court to show mercy for her some compassion and that had to that led to this relatively short sentence that the girl received which is why when the case was overturned the state didn't bother to retry it so i sort of backed into this in the sense that i never set out to be a psychological expert witness in murder cases uh, i just went about my work of understanding uh, child and adolescent development, the impact of trauma, the impact of maltreatment. And it just sort of came to a point where uh, some lawyers began to think this was useful in helping to understand what their clients had done, particularly their younger clients. And so it's a bit like what happened with my work on children in war zones. I didn't set out to become an expert on children in war, but um, through a series of circumstances, uh, people had read work I had done on trauma and community violence, and I was asked to go to the Middle East to sort of help write a report about the impact of the Palestinian Intifada, the uprising on Palestinian kids, and that led to other war zone experiences including Kuwait and Iraq and, um, oh gosh, uh, Cambodia, Nicaragua. And that led to a book on children in war zones. So I'm going on about that a bit because this, this work as an expert witness sort of grew out of my core interest in human development in difficult circumstances. And uh, so once that case in in Milwaukee was put on appeal, I thought maybe this is the end of it. But somebody in Colorado read about the case, thought it was worthwhile to ask me to testify there And the judge there was much more sympathetic. And indeed, uh, I did testify, I think it did have an impact on the sentence. And then through word of mouth, uh, various internet sources, there's a source for lawyers called LexisNexis, um, and publications and so on, this, this sort of snowballed to the point where it became a significant part of my professional life, bringing developmental psychology to the courtroom in these murder cases. I I emphasize the developmental part because mostly what I found had been coming into court was mostly clinical psychology and psychiatry, both of which were focused on diagnosing uh, conditions, mental disorders. Um, So you had that going on. And then you had um, social workers, mostly social workers developing social history, which essentially are biographies. And I thought what was missing was a developmental framework, a developmental perspective on the social history that would illuminate the lives of these kids and young people and young adults, um, but not just pigeonhole them in diagnostic categories. Right. You know, so I've been very suspicious of many diagnostic categories. My favorite is um, something that I first developed in the 1999 book, Lost Boys, and that's the diagnosis of conduct disorder. You know, if you observe a kid for six months and they demonstrate a chronic pattern of aggression, bad behavior, acting out and violating the rights of others, you can hand them this diagnosis of conduct disorder. It's an official diagnosis. But I kept thinking, well, what more do you know by calling it conduct disorder? Um, and, and it sort of came to a head when... Um, in New York State, the youth prison system issued a research report from their research office. That said, and as I reported in Lost Boys, I think they said 85% of the boys in prison had conduct disorder. And my response was, well duh, of course they do. That's how you get to prison, by showing a chronic pattern of aggression, bad behavior, acting out and violating the rights of others. I said, it's a bit like if you did a study of the football team at your high school and your conclusion was that 85% of the players were athletes well, you know, you'd say, well, of course, they are athletes we're on the football team. The interesting question then would become, what about the other 15 percent? What are they doing on the team? So so I tried to craft this approach. You know, we call it a developmental perspective on, on all these issues of the impact of trauma. You know, that's an example. You know, many people are familiar with this diagnosis, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But the more I learned, the more I thought we really should change that D The D should really be post-traumatic stress development because that's what really what it comes down to is how do you develop in the wake of trauma? And, you know, it's a way way of looking at this huge amount of work on trauma from a somewhat different perspective, one that doesn't uh, pathologize people for the natural human response to trauma. And it also opens up the possibility that you can move beyond trauma. As many, many people
0: do, and you saw that similarity between the war zones in some of these uh, urban environments or some of these households mm-hmm. where I mean you talk about the double you talk about a double whammy household chaos, and that's definitely not a psychological term, and then kind of the war kind of chaos. Can you talk about the similarities between what happens in some households and uh, conflict
1: well I, I really began to dawn on me. When I went to the Middle East for the first time, 1986 or 87, and I spent time, you know, sort of running around the streets of the West Bank and Gaza and, and talking you know, through interpreters in many cases with teenagers who were involved in this uprising. And, and then I went back to Chicago. And I was struck by the fact that there were similarities and differences between this experience of community violence. Uh, It was semi or completely organized in both cases. You know, many of these war zones, you know, there are gangs, they may have to be called militias, but they're often not fundamentally different from gangs that we saw in Chicago. Uh, But a big difference was that in most of the war zones involved in this violence had a sense of purpose and meaningfulness. And in, in Chicago, the gang membership sometimes had that element. Usually though, it was much more a matter of survival, of access to resources. And and so I began to think about, explore the parallels and decided that it did make sense to think about the urban war zone because the similarities are very simple. There's are very uh, common. I began to see that uh, the impact of community violence was in some ways similar if you were in the West Bank in Gaza or in Chicago or LA. Then I began to think about the question well, why are some kids more attracted to gangs? Why does the trauma have more impact on some kids than others? And this is a question that we explored in research with Palestinian kids as well as with uh, Chicago kids. And I think what emerged was that one, if your home life is emotionally um, devoid, if it's abusive, neglectful, if you experience rejection at home, uh, you you crave the affirmation that a gang can provide. And this has been validated in studies from El Salvador, where I spent some time, and Florida where kids, you know, people often say, You know, that kids see these gangs as family surrogates, alternatives to family life. And you hear that a great deal, you know, that I got the affirmation there, the sense of even sometimes kids who don't have fathers say the older guys, you know, were my role models and all of that. So that was one thing that emerged that I think was important. That in an urban war zone, uh, when you are vulnerable, particularly because of maltreatment, abuse, rejection, abandonment at home, uh, the gangs provide a very powerful incentive to join. Of course once you get in, then eventually many of the many of these gang members become disillusioned. A lot of the work I do is with men in their 30s and 40s who are former gang members and they talk about how it was an illusion. You know, but that's true sometimes in these militias and revolutionary movements as well. That the ideology that is so appealing to a kid seems kind of phony to a middle-aged adult. So that was certainly one part of it that that became very important in this. Um, And then I began to realize that when you looked at gangs who are the source of much of the urban violence, that you really had to recognize they were not homogeneous. Uh, By that I mean that for 80, let's say 85% of the kids, these kids are basically normal kids who get involved in the gang not unlike you might get involved with the Boy Scouts in the sense that the peer influence, the peer experience, the excitement, the activities, the rewards that it gives, and merit badges and all of that are all there. But they're not fundamentally profoundly damaged, these kids. They are basically normal kids drawn into this toxic environment. Um, but it's sort of, you know, for them, it's sort of like the Boy Scouts with knives and guns and drug dealing. But there is a, let's say, 15%, for whom the gang is a vehicle for their very damaged view of the world. You know, uh, about 1% of the population are psychopaths. Uh, psychopaths find a very nurturing home in a gang because the normal moral rules and normal issues of conscience are suspended and they can thrive there. And so there's 15% who are very damaged, sociopaths, psychopaths can find the gang as a sort of vehicle to implement their own internal psychological agenda. And that has tremendous implications for prevention and intervention. Because if you treat gangs just like they're a bunch of psychopathic killers, you you try to suppress them, you destroy them if you can, and that process alienates the 85% who are fundamentally normal. But if you just treat them as the Boy Scouts with knives, guns, and drug dealing, then you allow that 15% to exploit the situation, and, and so complexity is the rule here rather than simplicity. H.L. Right. Mencken who said, "For every complex problem, there is a simple solution that is almost invariably wrong."
0: <laughs> right. And, but it is that underlying. Like you talk, your theme is you know basically these complex motivations result in criminal activity, but it's it's that turmoil uh, that takes place over years that adds brings these people into the criminal justice system right
1: yeah for the most part um, you know they begin and the gangs the gang leadership is often very aware of that they recruit kids and they often give you know for example a lot of guys will tell me when they were 10 11 12 13 their first job in the gang was to hold the guns so that the thinking was if they were caught they wouldn't have much of a penalty but the older guys could then have access to the guns while protecting themselves. And that, you know, that, so you sort of move through the ranks uh, up to the point where you're more like a soldier. And, and often you do hear this kind of soldier mentality from uh, young gang members. Um, and then, you know, they, all the vulnerabilities of young brains and young minds are, are sort of uh, exploited by this this toxic environment. And that's you know where I came to think about this double whammy that in the sense that one whammy is that you have an immature brain that basically all kids have. And I think it's fair to say, you can't really presume a mature brain till about age 25. Uh, so that's one of the whammies that you're dealing with whatever it is, whether it's uh, going to college or, um, driving a car or sex education, or choosing a career with this immature brain that is has difficulty with two basic things. One is executive function, which means decision-making, planning, anticipating consequences, balancing costs and benefits, all that kind of stuff. And then the second area is called emotional regulation or affective regulation, which means emotional intelligence, understanding your own feelings, understanding the feelings of others being able to link your rational brain with your emotional self. And these are things that are slow to develop. And research shows that they're particularly slow to develop in what's called hot cognition, which are emotionally powerful situations. And that's why, to use an example that many parents even could relate to, you can do sex education in a classroom with kids are being calm, they're not aroused, and they can understand, oh yes, if I'm about to be sexually active, I should put on a condom. But you get into an arousing situation and it's much more difficult to think clearly in that situation to the point where lots of kids have unprotected sex, even though they quote, know that they shouldn't. And the same thing applies to this. A lot of a lot of the violence comes in these rapidly escalating situations in which there's misperception of the, uh, expression or the feelings of others, uh, they, they, do, they do a 7-Eleven robbery, but right. so they haven't planned for the fact that the, the clerk might have a gun. And so they panic, somebody gets shot, somebody gets killed. Uh, the list is so long of these uh, stupid, dumb situations that particularly young offenders are prone to.
0: And you kind of bring the talk about that in your book, like how much choice is there really choice? with these uh, offenders, right? Like how, how much choice do they really have at that thing? They're thinking, but you're like you're saying, like it's kind of on a primitive level, really.
1: It is, you know, one of the guiding concepts that in the field of child sexual abuse, one of the breakthroughs was a guy named David Finkelhor who, who said that the big issue in sexual abuse of children is informed consent. Now informed consent has two components. One, you have to understand sort of intellectually what it is you're deciding to do. And the second thing is you have to be free to say yes or no. This is why, you know, most medical research with prisoners has been outlawed, because if you're a prisoner and the warden says, we'd like you to participate in this drug study, it's very difficult to think you have a free yes or no choice. And if you don't, you know, sort of a may seem like uh, a red herring here, but if you were told to to be in a trial for a vaccine and they didn't tell you what the negative side effects might be, you couldn't give informed consent right. because you don't know everything you need to know. And that's true about a lot of the decisions that kids, particularly in gang-infested neighborhoods, who have, often they have powerful emotional issues related to their family trauma that they're only beginning to understand by the time they're in their 20s. I mean, for example, um, it looks like one of the worst things that can happen to a little boy is to be rejected and abandoned by his mother. Uh, after tw- you know, almost 30 years of doing this, that's, that's about the worst thing that can happen to you. Partly because if your father rejects you, there's a certain sort of cultural social normalness to that, normality to that. I interviewed a kid once, he was 15. He said, until I was 14, I never met anyone who had a father living in the home. So the absence of his father was, he didn't take it personal in a way because it's so common. But if your mother abandons you, your mother rejects you, it's hard not to think, what's wrong with me? Why am I such a loser that my mother would abandon me? And it can generate some incredibly powerful and confusing ways of approaching the world. For example, I think this case is probably in Listening to Killers. Imagine this kid was abandoned by his mother four times She would abandon him. He'd go into foster care. She'd come back, get his hopes up. She'd abandon him again. And by the time he was 12, uh, she came back again, persuaded the agency to let her have visits with her son. He came over to her trailer, whatever it was. After a couple of visits, she said, well, I want you to feel at home. He said, bring your bicycle over here so you'll feel at home with me. So he did. And the next week when he came, not only was she gone, but she had sold his bicycle. We have to imagine the rage and the sadness in the old boy's mind to have this happen to him again, to fall for it again. Well, fast forward 10 years, he's now 22. He gets involved with a woman who is the same age as his mother. She's 17 years older than he is. They have a stormy sexual relationship for five years. Eventually they get into a fight over drug money and he stabs her 35 times. To stab somebody 35 times requires an enormous mobilization of energy. Uh, and you know, he didn't realize it at the time, but you know, to us as an outsider, it's pretty obvious, who is he stabbing? He's stabbing his mother, not this other woman. It took him a number of years to really get that because it was so powerful, it was so built into his unconscious mind. And one of the things I tried to do in my 1999 book, Lost Boys, was to enrich our understanding of the psychological inner life of these violent uh, boys right. and men.
0: Right, and you would you agree that the kind of criminal justice system, at least maybe before yeah. your time, before this expert witness involvement, really had a kind of superficial kind of cookie-cutter thing, you've done this, this is it, here's your sentence, go to jail?
1: I'd say for the most part, yes. Yes. Um, you know, I think I was one case I was working on recently, I was looking at the original sentencing hearing. And the prosecutor's concluding remarks basically said, Look, this kid chose to reject his family when he was eight. He chose to join a gang when he was nine. He chose to get involved in drug dealing when he was eleven. And now here he is at 17, choosing to commit a murder. You know, to me, that's that is superficial. It's intellectually bankrupt. It's developmentally stupid because if we had an eight-year-old girl who chose to have sex with her uncle, a 35-year-old uncle, we wouldn't say, well, she chose to have sex. It must be okay. It's her fault. Um, that w- there, That's why this issue of informed consent is so powerful. Eight-year-olds can't give informed consent for sex with adults. They can't give informed consent for drug dealing. They can't give informed consent for gang membership. And yet often the criminal justice system of ab- ignores that and says, well, they just made bad choices. Right, right. And uh, and this idea of choice, you know, it's so fundamental to our ideology in American culture. But uh, when you really get down to the nitty gritty of it, uh, for example, if you were a 16-year-old, you could say this to any viewer or listener, if you're 16 years old and on your way to school, a couple of 18-year-olds approach you and say, uh, we're going to give you a choice. You can join us and become a blood or a crip or a Latin king or whatever it is, or we're going to kill your mother and your sister. Well, all right, make a choice. What's the right choice in that situation? Join,
0: right. I mean, I think join, especially you're 16, but yeah, you gotta, all that context is so important too. Yeah, it is, it is. And the criminal justice system does not take that into account. I mean, I just did another interview with a guy who's a criminal justice reformer, and it's just like, some of the stuff used to definitely not be taken into account. It's all punishment, and they don't take into account all the context and all the background, and it is interesting you juxtapose some of these things where you cannot sign a contract under 18, acknowledging that your brain isn't in yourself, personal self isn't developed enough to be in a contractual business arrangement, but in some of these other things, they impute all this blame upon you if you're 12 or 13 in a drug environment where you have no choice sexual abuse, physical abuse, all that stuff is happening to a very young person who's not a fully developed personality at all, just like you said.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's very easy to get wrapped up in a sort of ideological approach to this. So, for example, 40 years ago, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, so 40 years ago puts me in my mid-30s, um, I had a sort of ideological belief that every teenager should be dealt with in the juvenile justice system. I don't think that anymore because I've come to recognize that some juveniles are so profoundly damaged by the abuse and the trauma they've experienced that they're not just going to get better um, if you wait a few years. You know, there's a study from Florida that found that when they sentenced juvenile murderers, to at that time they were getting like 10 years, the recidivism rate, the rate at which they committed additional violent crimes when they were released was something like 90%. Right. And that makes sense to me developmentally because 10 years only brings you to your mid 20s, which is when you have a mature brain and then you need to use the time to use that mature brain to rehabilitate and transform yourself positively. So I sort of got to the point of saying, look, if a kid is just experiencing an adolescent crisis without long-standing issues of trauma and abuse, you know, a kid from a basically normal family who gets involved with drugs and before long he's involved in a drug dealing related murder with no other trauma or criminal record, he probably can be rehabilitated in a few years. Um, actually, many of the school shooters uh, that we had in, the, you know, not so much lately, but we had a surge of them 20 30 years ago most of them and I know a couple of them could have been rehabilitated uh, by the time they were 21 because they were experiencing a crisis not a long standing chronic traumatic environment but because so much of our sentencing is just based on the on the crime not on the context of the person well, most of them got like 100 years or 300 years or life without parole whereas um, I was working on a case just a couple of days ago where a kid was involved in a group. He shot somebody three times. Uh, but the guy didn't die. He just was shot in the leg three times, was wounded and recovered. Well, in the criminal justice system, that kid is is a low relatively low risk, and so his sentence is relatively short because it was only, you know, uh, attempted murder or uh, aggravated assault. But from my perspective, It doesn't matter how many bullets he put in or whether he killed him or not. What matters is who he is, where he comes from, where he's headed. And that guy, that kid, I don't think, you know, is going to get better within just a few years going from 15 to 18 or 15 to 20. He's probably got to stay till he's 25 when he has a mature brain and then have that mature brain as a resource to work on his issues. So it's paradoxical in a way that... uh, you know, the understanding doesn't necessarily lead to dismissal of the charges it may lead to recognition that this is a long haul to uh, to get better from this and um and i see it happen because i work with a lot of guys in their 30s and 40s and i've seen it happen with them but clearly you know because sometimes i ask them what do you think would have happened if you'd gotten away with this murder that you committed when you're 17 and they typically say well I either would have been dead by the time I was 20 or would have killed somebody else by the time I was 20. And that insight is so powerful and important. And yet, as you point out, the criminal justice system to a large degree is not set up to think that way. Right.
0: I mean, it is something else. Like, I don't know anybody in their teens who really had that capacity for self-analysis that maybe comes with age or or, uh, kind of seasoned self-analysis. So a lot of these people in their teens are just making decisions based upon many other things. Can you talk, you talk about your book in your book about rehabilitation and trying to transform this process of people who've done terrible things in their teens or youth. Can you talk about some of the steps that can be taken to try to ameliorate some of these problems?
1: Well, certainly at the preventive level, there are, there's a guy named Robert Zager who's mentioned in the, in the book, his research. Uh, He developed a way of identifying the kids most at risk to commit severe violence. Um, They used it in Chicago to identify uh, 3,000 of the most high-risk kids, and then they put them into a particular program, a program that had three components. One was a mentoring program, a long-term mentoring program, because mentoring can provide this relationship, this uh, role model, this correcting of thinking, this access to alternative experiences. So mentoring was one part, a jobs program was the second part because that gave them an alternative economic pathway to the drug dealing and the crime and so on. And the third was an anger management program, which is partly shorthand for uh, preventive psychotherapy to get self understanding, to get uh, a resolution of some of these issues, to have techniques to deal with your anger. And they found with those three components, they reduced the number of murders by half. Wow, yeah. that's pretty dramatic. Of course, when the yes. administration came in, they said, "Well, no, we're going to do our own program," and they, you know, they scrapped it. Um. Back up with the homicide rate. So that that sort of gives you an idea that once you've committed a murder, now once you're in in custody, uh, the elements really are the same. That you need to have this therapeutic intervention that deals with anger issues and parental rejection issues and trauma issues, all of that stuff, you need to have a mentoring program, which is, in a sense, role models. And you sometimes guys will say, some older guy, often a lifer, sort of you know, took me on and helped me see things more clearly. So you get that. And then you get this jobs, education, spiritual development component. Um, I remember in one prison, they had a hospice program. And the guys who participated as helpers in the hospice program were transformed by it. Because partly they would say, I took a life, and the idea that I can help someone pass peacefully is restorative for me. Um, they have uh, educational programs. And you know, one of the best predictors is if you get your DED while you're incarcerated. So you have the competence to do it and you have the motivation to stick with it, uh, college credits, uh, and then there's this spiritual component. Um, you know, you here you are a young person, you've been told you have life in prison. You know, what possible motivation can you have for becoming a civilized, educated, well-behaved person? Well, often it's that you say, it's not just me here, There's there's a larger dimension to this. There's a spiritual dimension. So that practically often translates into meditation, which can change your brain, change your attitude, to spiritual activities, which give you a sense of the meaningfulness of life and give you a sense of humility. And you know, I've often thought with teenagers that you have this issue. Um, if you don't have a spiritual grounding, then it's just you and me. I want your jacket and I'll kill you for your jacket. But the minute you have a spiritual dimension, it's you and me and something bigger. And that imposes limits, both on what you can do, It also creates limits for how bad you can feel. But you're less likely to go into this despair because you know that no matter how awful my life seems, there may be a larger purpose to it. And whether you agree with that or not, it does seem to function psychologically for a lot of guys. So you get this process uh, going on. And particularly when they get to their mid-20s, when they have a mature brain, they can make use of this. I had a guy recently who said, I woke up on my twenty fifth birthday and I said, What the hell have I been doing? I gotta really do something with my life. Right. that's extreme. But it captures this idea that it's like now you have a tool. Instead of having one hand tied behind your back, you have both hands available. Right. So I often say that you have to ch- the choice that you have to make eventually if you have long term incarceration is are you gonna live as a barbarian and a savage, or are you gonna live as a monk? And the ones who choose to live among take this path. And we know that because human brains are malleable, if you begin to behave differently, you think differently, your brain will adapt to that and support you in that change. There's a book called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge, who's a neuroscientist. That chapter after chapter shows that brains, not just in childhood and adolescence, but into adulthood, brains can change in response to change behavior and environments. And so the more you act like a monk, the more you have a brain of a monk, the easier it becomes to act like a monk. And and I see these guys very often. And some of them are the focus of the book that followed Listening to Killers, the book called Miller's Children, which is about the resentencing of guys who committed murders as adolescents and now have gone through this process of uh, rehabilitation and transformation. And- uh, that book was very inspiring for me because you know particularly working on death penalty cases where the quote best outcome is somebody's not going to be executed it's very hard emotionally it's very hard spiritually to do but these cases of where you get to see right in front of you rehabilitation and transformation not just that the guys are safe for release but some of them become remarkable human beings and that's been very sustaining for me intellectually spiritually emotionally
0: Right. And I mean, I think that it's important to look at that whole person and that progress, uh, the ability to change too. giving the the criminal justice system really needs to give people that opportunity. But it goes all so much back to nurture. And I think our society has really done a disservice to a lot of kind of smaller subgroups. You talk about racism in your book, too, about, you know, these these environments are producing these effects. It's obvious that that's happening. So and you talk about like, Maybe you can finish up by talking about your, your views on like guns in uh, those environments
1: mm-hmm. Well you know the, my intellectual background is what's called an ecological perspective on human development and that basically means that context is very important to outcome so much so that if you say um, does X cause y uh, the best, Scientific answer is usually, it depends. It depends on the context in which of X and Y are occurring. So for example, uh, if guns are widely available, it's become pretty clear that in most contexts, you get higher suicide rates because depressed people who have guns shoot themselves. By the same token, if you have guns available to teenagers and they're in these toxic environments and they come Emotional deprivation, people die. You know, back in 1990, I remember when I looked at the data, if you look at the highest youth homicide rates, you found that they were in cultures that had a combination of what is called a culture of honor, which is the culture that says if somebody disrespects you, violence is the response. So the culture of honor coupled with access to lethal weapons. So back in 1990, Um, You know, what was the what was the country with the highest youth homicide rate, taking out countries that were officially at war? It was the United States uh, and particularly African-Americans within the United States, because the culture of racism. Interacts with this culture of honor, which was particularly strong in the American South and most American, African-American populations have roots in the South. So that experience of disrespect coupled with that. Rage from racism, you know, is a dangerous combination. When you throw guns into that mix, uh, you get, um, you, know, you get mayhem.
0: Higher amounts of violence, right? So without the guns, it wouldn't be as vicious, right? So there's the access yeah. to weaponry. I have a question. And
1: just an example of that is that Scotland is where a lot of this culture of honor came to the Old South, the disproportionate settlement of the South by Scots. Scotland is up near the top of youth homicide rates, but it's not at the top because they have knives instead of guns. A colleague of mine said, if our kids had guns at the same rate yours did, we'd be number one in youth homicide. Instead, Glasgow was called the knifing capital of Europe because of this, the poverty combined with the culture of honor. So, you know, there's always a question of drawing a complete map that has the cultural and the social influences the historical influences, and then the psychological influences as well. So again, it's uh, it's not simple, but the more you know, I think the more you know, the more compassion you have because the more you understand.
0: Yeah, I agree. I have a question from one of the listeners. He's asking, uh, the same theory applies to birth certificates and social security numbers. Citizen- citizenship is much the same as race that way. Can dr garbarino speak on informed consent and presumption of legal liability to 100 million laws i guess that's the question anything
1: anything that diminishes people diminishes their sense of validity is a risk factor in this equation um and so racism uh bias bias of any kind you know it (laughs) about a very significant proportion of African-Americans in the United States have Native American heritage. Something like, I forgot the number, 40%, something like that. I remember working on a case of a kid who was, quote, black, but he had a lot of very Native American features and he was bullied and haunted for that. And it became a source of danger to his development. When we met him, he was in a detention center. We gave him a book called The, uh, the Black Indians which is about this, and it was remarkable because it gave him a sort of positive place to stand culturally, and he got a lot better because he wasn't constantly being eaten away by this feeling of inadequacy. And I think that can be true as well with um, immigration issues, citizenship issues, that anything that makes you part of the other, that makes you a devalued group is a risk factor. Whether or not it translates into violence depends on a lot of other things, including gender, I mean, that's the most obvious
0: thing that- Right. Uh, I think you said like 98% or something are male. Of these Yeah. Colors
1: but, are. Um, and there are biological reasons for that. There are cultural reasons for that. Um, you know, for example, there's a gene, the MAOA gene, that if you have it in a certain form, it, it reduces your brain's capacity to deal with stress. And so kids who have that gene sort of turned off and are abused- In a study, 80-something percent developed conduct disorder, that chronic pattern of aggression and so on. If they had the gene uh, turned on, they had the normal gene, and they were abused, it was only 40%. But the real story was, if they were not abused, the gene became irrelevant. So the gene is only relevant if you're in the stressful environment of child abuse. And I think that, and then the reason why I mention it now is that that genetic problem is nine times more common in males than females because that gene is on the on the X chromosome, and males only have one X chromosome as opposed to two. And so I mean it's a complex story, but the point is there may be genetic foundations for this gender difference. When you look at because you know even this racial difference in assault and homicide only applies for low-income African Americans. Middle-class African-Americans don't have a higher rate.
0: It's the environment, yeah. the
1: combination, the the accumulation of risk factors. I would often be asked, you know, is this the cause of youth violence? And I would say it's like building a tower of blocks. You put block after block after block on the tower. And finally, put one more block on and the tower falls over. That block isn't really the cause. It's only the cause in the context of that accumulation. And people need to be able to think this way uh, because it, it leads to much better interventions, much better laws and policies, and a much better sense of uh, the humanity of people who otherwise can be dehumanized.
0: Right. Better outcomes for them, too. Bob, wow, what an outstanding uh, discussion. Thanks so much for sharing all that knowledge. Where's the best p- place for people to get listening to killers?
1: Well, I think it's available on Amazon and paperback, okay. uh, as Miller's Children. I think Lost Boys is still on there, too, but, but certainly that's the way to go. Uh, I think it's available. I think as a uh, online book as well as a, a fashion hard copy, which is what I read, of course, being an old geezer.
0: And then uh, you have Lost Boys too. That's an audio book. And do you have social media or email or or your website where people can reach out to you if they want to? Well, I
1: will give you my email at the risk of being inundated, but uh, I don't. You know, I have a Facebook. You have, you have a Facebook.
0: To. Okay, I never
1: go there, though, so if you really want to reach me, I'm not much of a... Well, I'll put it in
0: here. the show, show notes. You can just send it to me by email. Okay, I will. It leave. doesn't have to be there. I mean, some people have websites, book websites, but Amazon seems to be the best place to get this that book. Definitely the best. Place. Gotcha. And the title, again, that we discussed, uh, Dr. Garbarino has 26 books, but this book, again, is Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases, published 2015, Dr. James Garbarino, G-A-R-B-A-R-I-N-L. Thank you so much, Dr. Garbarino.
1: Thank you. It's been good to be here. Yeah,
0: excellent. Excellent interview. Stay there.